Leftovers. This is episode 47, January 20, 2017, with your host, Mid Dope. Thank you all for listening. Today's show, just had to hit the button. The way my mind works, start working on something, keeps on rolling, next day comes, nothing goes, more ideas, more ideas, more ideas. Uh, let's get it going. Today, education show. What are we going to do? about all these accidents happening. One of the things that we can do, it's proven that states that have had medical marijuana legalized, fatalities in traffic accidents have gone down. That's one thing, that's going to be the overall data we're going to start with today. I want to look at Oregon. They have been named by Law blog as the top state for cannabis how they deal with things. We're going to look at that a little bit. Then we're going to jump into comparing Oregon and Alaska, how traffic deaths are being affected by cannabis and if there is a correlation between legalization. One thing about Oregon and Alaska that's different, Alaska never really had a, a robust medical marijuana program. It was legal, but you can get it anywhere couldn't buy it anywhere, say that way. Oregon, on the other hand, has legal recreational now. They did have medical. Let's see where things go. Let's let's look right at Canon Law blog and why they feel Oregon ranks number one. Two thousand sixteen was a huge year for cannabis, so we decided we would rank the fifty states from worst to best on how they treat cannabis and those who consume it. Each of our state of cannabis posts analyzed one state. We started this series on January tenth, two thousand sixteen, and now over a year later, we are ready to crown the top state for cannabis law, Oregon. Alaska's number five. Nice. Let's look at Oregon recreational cannabis. Oregon voters approved Measure 91 to legalize recreational cannabis in 2014. This was two years after the failure of the Oregon Cannabis Tax Act, which appeared on the 2012 ballot and would have legalized recreational marijuana. Measure 91 allows adults 21 and over to grow up to four plants on their property, possess up to eight ounces of usable marijuana, dried marijuana flowers or leaves that are ready to smoke in their home, and carry up to one ounce in public. Like other legal states, marijuana cannot be consumed in public. The Oregon Liquor Control Commission has the authority to tax, license, and regulate recreational marijuana grown, sold, or processed for commercial purposes, but does not regulate the home grow personal possession provisions of Oregon law. The OLCC oversees multiple license types, including producer, processor, wholesale, retail, and researcher licenses. Oregon has not limited the number of licenses we grant meaning that OLCC is continuously accepting applications. It also allows a single licensee to own multiple licenses. This differs from the approach taken by Washington, which limits the number of licenses granted and is not currently accepting new marijuana applications. Oregon's marijuana market is open to out-of-state actors, as the state does not impose a residency requirement. This also differs from Washington and from Colorado, which require licenses to state residents. 
Oregon imposes a relatively low 17% tax on recreational marijuana sales. Finally, Oregon one of the few states to allow for cannabis delivery, although Portland, the state's largest city, does not yet allow for this delivery. Medical marijuana. Oregon first legalized medical marijuana in 1998 by passing ballot measure 67. Oregon's medical market is distinct from the recreational market, although there is some regulatory overlap between the two. For example, Oregon medical dispensaries were authorized to sell recreational marijuana from October 1st, 2016 to January 1st, 2017, while the recreational market took shape. Oregon medical marijuana is regulated by the Oregon Health Authority. Individuals with a qualifying medical condition and recommendation for medical marijuana from an attending physician can apply for this card. Qualifying conditions include the following, cancer, glaucoma, Alzheimer's, HIV AIDS, severe pain, severe nausea, seizures, persistent muscles, muscle spasms, and multiple sclerosis. Medical patients may possess up to six plants, which may only be grown in a registered grow site address and up to 24 ounces of marijuana. This means patients are legally allowed to possess more cannabis than recreational users. Medical users may purchase from licensed medical marijuana dispensaries, but are limited to purchasing the, mar the following amounts in a single day. Okay, here's what they can... This, is, this blew my mind. In a single day, 24 ounces of usable marijuana can be purchased. 16 ounces of cannabinoid, 72 ounces of liquid cannabinoid, 16 ounces of concentrate, 5 grams of extract, uh, 4 immature marijuana plants, and 50 seeds. I don't know, quite a list they can pull off. Many expect Oregon's medical and recreational cannabis regimes will eventually merge, and proposed legislation could accomplish just that. Bottom line, determining the top state in this series was not easy. There was significant debate among our cannabis lawyers as to whether California, Colorado, Oregon, or Washington should take top honors. Seeing as how we have offices and lawyers in California, Washington, Oregon, we must concede just a bit of bias here. Ultimately, we determined that Oregon has the best marijuana program. One of the prime determinants for us was Oregon not having a residency requirement. As we see, this is very business-friendly and making it much easier for cannabis business to secure funding. Oregon also has shockingly low licensing fees and does not cap the number of licenses it will grant. This means one need not be a millionaire to get into the industry, and this also means there will be, and there is, substantial competition to keep cannabis prices down. Oregon also allows its cannabis licenses to vertically integrate by owning multiple license types. The state is also consumer-friendly with relatively low taxes, with laws that allow for home-growing your own cannabis. Oregon has had legal medical marijuana for nearly 20 years, and it used this medical market to permit early sales of recreational marijuana, evidencing the state's willingness to take a pragmatic approach to marijuana legalization. They're not perfect, but they seem to be the best in the nation. And they're asking if we agree. A lot of similarities with Oregon and Alaska. Oregon can definitely have a lot more medical patients, that's for sure. We, 17% um, tax, it's interesting. They have delivery, um, no on-site consumption, no, so... Um, outside investment that's one of the big things that's keeping alaska small at the moment that could change really at any time we'll see 25 years i'm a lot still trying to get up that great big hill of hope for a destination i realized quickly when i knew let's move I on that the world was 
to this idea. This is from Business Insider. Uh, December 28, 2016. States that legalized marijuana saw a drop in traffic deaths. Wow, that just doesn't seem right, does it? Okay. But, this new study finds, legalization of medical marijuana is not linked with increased traffic fatalities. In some states, in fact, the number of people killed in traffic accidents dropped after medical marijuana laws were enacted. Instead of seeing an increase in fatalities, we saw a reduction, which was totally unexpected, said Julian Tenoro, the study's lead author and doctoral student at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health in New York City. Since 1996, 28 states have legalized marijuana for medical use. Deaths dropped 11% on average in states that legalized medical marijuana. Research discovery after analyzing 1.2 million traffic fatalities nationwide from 85 to 2014. The decrease in traffic fatalities were particularly striking, 12% in 25 to 44-year-olds, an age group with a large percentage of registered medical marijuana users. The authors report in the American Journal of Public Health. Though Santilla Tenoro was surprised by the drop in traffic deaths, the results mirror the findings of another study of data from 19 states published in 2013 in the Journal of Law and Economics. It showed an 8-11% decrease in traffic fatalities during the first full year after legalization of medical marijuana. Public safety doesn't decrease with increased access to marijuana, rather it improves. Benjamin Hansen, one of the authors of the previous study, said in an email, Hansen, an economics professor at the University of Oregon, Eugene, was not involved in the current study. He cautioned that both marijuana and alcohol are drugs that can impair driving. It's not clear why traffic deaths might drop when medical marijuana becomes illegal. And the study can only show an association. It can't prove cause and effect. The authors of both studies suggest that marijuana users might be more aware of their impairment as a result of the drug than drinkers. It's also possible, they say, that patients with access to medical marijuana have substituted weed at home for booze and bars and have stayed off the roads. Or they suggest the drop in traffic fatalities could stem from other factors, such as an increased police presence following enactment of medical marijuana laws. Law enforcement authorities have yet to devise a way to test drivers for marijuana intoxication and have raised concerns about drivers high on cannabis. Though traffic deaths dropped following legalization of medical marijuana laws in seven states, fatality rates rose in Rhode Island and Connecticut, the study found. California immediately cut traffic deaths by 16% following medical marijuana legalization and then saw a gradual increase, the study found. Researchers saw a similar trend in New Mexico with an immediate reduction of more than 17% followed by an increase. The, follow, the findings highlight differences in various states' medical marijuana laws and indicate the need for research on the partic particularities of how localities have implemented them, Tenora said. Voters in Denver, Colorado, approved a November ballot measure to allow public consumption of marijuana, Hansen noted. But he said, we don't know the public health consequences of those types of policy changes yet. And from my hair, Brandon Emmett, he says things are moving along quite nicely for maybe Alaska being the first to have on-site consumption we shall see it's still moving slowly in denver colorado with them getting things moving along but we shall see now one of the things that i think is important to look at is going to actually a um the website from the government okay this is drugabuse.gov Okay, and this is their definition of drug driving. 
let's see let's just even take a look at what that is okay as we as we're talking about states that um, that legalize medical marijuana have decrease in fatalities but in some states after the decrease comes an increase um, you know I just got into the show too quick because I just hit record and I haven't really taken a toke yet you know we've got right now what I have the pleasure of having access to is a little bit of cookies kush a little sampler from what's going to be coming out from good sense soon from one of the growers dank he this cookies kush is some of the best tasting cannabis I've had in a long time the smell Mm, I just freshly ground some. Smell is just a creamy, smooth. Mm, I've been told that smell and smell is that the Durban poison that's in this cookies kush. But wow, um, you guys are gonna love this when this comes out in good sense. And by the way, we do some harvesting here in a couple days. We've got some dead show coming. And we've got Cookies Kush. More dead show than Cookies Kush, but we are excited. You guys are really going to like this Cookies Kush. I have not had any dead show yet, but I've heard great things. Mm, talking too much? Let's hit this. Well, Fairbanks, Good Sense has opened its doors. We will be open as cannabis is available. Be ready. Good sense flower about to be harvested. Cookies, Kush, and Dead Show. Whoa! Didn't get to sleep that night till the morning came around. Taste it as it smells. Just great. Mm. One of the things, too, I might want to mention got some of these glass screens recently. Um, daisy screens. There are a bunch of little flower jacks that go into a glass screen, and they are really pretty. That's maybe what you can say about them. I'm not. I don't think I do not like them as much as a regular screen in a pipe, but they're cool. Cleaning them off. They're interesting. They're working pretty good. Um, mm, cookies, gush. Let's get to drug driving, what the government says. June 2016. Use of illicit drugs or misuse of prescription drugs can make driving a car unsafe, just like driving it after drinking alcohol. Drug driving puts the driver, passengers, and others who share the road at risk. Why is drug driving dangerous? Now remember, drug driving... Uh, I'm just going to read... The effects of specific drugs differ depending on how they act in the brain. For example, cannabis can slow reaction time, impair judgment of time and distance, and decrease coordination. Drivers who have used cocaine or methamphetamine can be aggressive and reckless when driving. Certain kinds of sedatives called benzodiazepines can cause dizziness and drowsiness. All these impairments can lead to vehicle crashes. Research studies have shown negative effects of cannabis on drivers including an increase in lane weaving, poor reaction time, and altered attention to the road. 
Use of alcohol with marijuana made drivers more impaired, causing even more lane weaving. It's difficult to determine how specific drugs affect driving because people tend to mix various substances, including alcohol. But we do know that even small amounts of some drugs can have measurable effect. As a result, some states have zero tolerance for laws for drug driving. This means a person can face charges for driving under the influence if there is any amount of drug in blood or urine. It's important to note that many states are waiting for research to define blood levels that indicate impairment, such as those with alcohol. Okay. How many people take drugs and drive? According to the 2014 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, 10 million people aged 12 or older reported driving under the influence. 12 or what? During the year. Um, the findings also show that men are more likely than women to drive under the influence of drugs or alcohol, and a higher percentage of young adults aged 18 to 25 drive after taking drugs or drinking than do adults 26 or older. So it's a young person. It's more prevalent in young people. Which drugs are linked to drug driving? After alcohol, cannabis is the drug most often found in the blood of drivers involved in crashes. Keep in mind, it stays in your system a long time. Test for detecting marijuana in drivers measures the level of THC. Marijuana is mind-altering ingredient in the blood. But the role that marijuana plays in crashes is often unclear. THC can be detected in body fluids for days or even weeks after use, and it's often combined with alcohol. The risk associated with marijuana in combination with alcohol and cocaine appears to be greater than that for either drug by itself. Several studies have shown... Look, keep this alcohol. Several studies have shown that drivers with THC in their blood were roughly twice as likely to be responsible for a deadly crash or be killed than drivers who hadn't used drugs or alcohol. However, a large study found that no significant increased crash risk traceable to marijuana after controlling for drivers' age, gender, race, and presence of alcohol. More research is needed. Interesting. Into a Twice as likely on alcohol and no significant increase with cannabis. Along with cannabis, prescription drugs are also commonly linked to drug driving crashes. A 2010 nationwide study of deadly crashes found that about 47% of drivers who tested positive for drugs had all had used a prescription drug. It's half compared to 37% of those who had used marijuana and about 10% of those who used cocaine. The most common prescription drugs found were pain relievers. However, the study didn't distinguish between medically supervised and illicit use of the prescription drugs. How often does drug driving cause crashes? It is hard to measure how many crashes are caused by drug driving. This is because a good roadside test for drug levels in the body doesn't yet exist. 
Police don't usually test for drugs if drivers have reached an illegal blood alcohol level because there's already enough evidence for a DUI charge. Many drivers who cause crashes are found to have both drugs and alcohol, or more than one drug in their system, making it hard to know which substance had the greater effect. One study in 2009, 18% of drivers killed in a crash tested positive for at least one drug. 2010 showed that 11% of crashes involved a drug driver. Mm -hmm. Drug driving in older adults. 2010, more than one quarter of drug drivers in deadly crashes were 50 or older. Illicit drug use in adults 50 to 59 has increased, more than doubling from 3% in 2002 to 7% in 2010. Mental decline in older adults can lead to taking prescription drug more or less often than they should or in the wrong amount. Older adults also may not break down the drug in their system as quickly as young people. These factors can lead to unattended intoxication while behind the wheel of a car. Why is drug driving a problem in teens and young adults? Teen drivers are less experienced and more likely than older drivers to underestimate or not recognize dangerous situations. They are also more likely to speed or allow less distance between vehicles. When lack of driving experience is combined with drug use, the results can be tragic. Car crashes are the leading cause of death among young people 16 to 19 years old. 2011 survey of middle and high school students showed that two weeks before the survey, 12% of high school seniors had driven after using cannabis, compared to around 9% driven after drinking alcohol. A study of college students with access to a car found that one in six had driven under the influence of a drug other than alcohol at least once in the past year. Cannabis was the most common drug used, followed by cocaine and prescription painkillers. What steps can people take to prevent drug driving? Because drug driving puts people at higher risk for crashes, public health experts urge people who use drugs and alcohol to develop social strategies to prevent them from getting behind the wheel of a car while impaired. Steps people can take include offering to be a designated driver, appointing a designated driver to take all car keys, getting a ride to and from parties where there are drugs and alcohol, discussing the risks of drug driving with friends in advance. Stay home. Points to remember. Use of illicit drugs or misuse of prescription drugs can make driving a car unsafe, just like driving after drinking alcohol. In 2014, 10 million people aged 12 or older reported driving under the influence of illicit drugs in the past year. It's hard to measure how many crashes drug driving causes. After alcohol, cannabis is the drug most often linked to drug driving. In 2010, more than one quarter of drug drivers in fatal crashes were aged 50 years or older. When lack of driving experience is combined with drug use, the results can be tragic. And people who use drugs and alcohol should develop social strategies to prevent them from getting behind the wheel of a car while impaired. All right, that's all good stuff from the government. It's good. I like it. Good social advice there. Good social health stuff. Now, after starting with the business times, talking about decreased crashes, let's go into the Washington Times. And they talk about marijuana-related fatal car accidents surge in Washington State after legalization. Hmm, what's the difference here? What is the difference? 
Washington Times. This is last May 2016. Roughly 10% of Washington State drivers involved in fatal car crashes between 2010 and 2014 tested positive for recent marijuana use. So that's higher than what we were just talking about. With the percentage of drivers who had used pot within hours of a crash doubling between 2013 and 2014, according to a new study. Although the uptick in fatal crashes comes after Washington citizens voted in 2012 to legalize marijuana and other states are expected to consider similar measures. A second AAA study discourages lawmakers from adopting arbitrary legal limits on marijuana use because of a lack of adequate methods to determine impairment by the drug. Now this is very different. This is talking about recreational being legalized, not medical. AAA officials said that the studies about cannabis and driving released Tuesday are meant to encourage more comprehensive enforcement measures to improve road safety. Authorities in Washington recorded 436 fatal crashes in 2013 and determined that drivers involved in 40 crashes tested positive for THC, the active chemical in marijuana, according to the study. In 2014, they found that of the 462 fatal crashes, 85 of them tested positive for THC. The fatal crash study does not determine whether drivers were impaired, and it notes that there was no sign of an increase in fatal crashes among those with cannabis in their system until a full 39 weeks after marijuana obsession was legalized in the state. But the uptick in crashes by people testing positive for recent marijuana use also raises concern over the lack of adequate methods to determine whether drivers are actually impaired by marijuana when they get behind the wheel. The significant increase in fatal crashes involving marijuana is alarming said Peter Kissinger, president and CEO of the AAA Foundation for Traffic Safety. Washington serves as an eye-opening case study for what other states may experience with the road safety after legalizing the drug. Michael Green, a spokesman for AAA, said test use were meant to detect active THC and are generally thought to detect marijuana use within the last four to six hours. Unlike tests used to detect drunk driving, there are no proven blood or urine tests that can determine how high a person is for marijuana only how much marijuana is in their system. As a result, AAA officials said adopting per se limits that specify the maximum amounts of active THC that drivers can have in their system are not useful. There is understandably a strong desire by both lawmakers and the public to create legal limits for marijuana impairment in the same manner as we do alcohol, said AAA President Marshall Doney. In the case of marijuana, this approach is flawed and not supported by scientific research. The second AAA study instead encourages states to looking to limit driving under the influence of marijuana to place more emphasis on teaching police officers to conduct roadside tests that would detect signs and symptoms of marijuana. It's a suggestion that Paul Armitano, Deputy Director of the Pro-Marijuana Group Normal, supports so long as field sobriety tests are developed to measure the known effects of marijuana rather than trying to adapt methods developed to test alcohol impairments to fit the drug. Because of the lack of adequate tests to determine impairment, Mr. Armentano, questions whether AAA's findings on fatal crashes can claim any causality link to marijuana usage. 
We should not conflate the detection to certain substances with the notion that the driver was necessarily impaired with certain substances. This data may reflect that a greater portion of the public is using cannabis, that police are more routinely screening for cannabis, or that there are procedurally changes in the way drug screening and accidents is performed. Mr. Armentano instead points to a 2015 study from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration that found that motorists who used marijuana prior to driving were no more likely to be involved in a car crash than individuals who had not used any drugs or alcohol prior to getting behind the wheel. Meanwhile, the study found drivers with a blood alcohol concentration of 0.05 or above were seven times more likely to be involved in a crash. Again, alcohol rates increasing someplace, decreasing other places. We just need more research. We need more research. Mm, getting a little thirsty here reading too much. I'm going to reach over for an Alaskan free ride, Pale Ale. Loving this brand too. this is so important, particularly in Alaska. Icy roads, younger population. I'm going to go to ADN, Alaska Daily News, Alaska Dispatch. November 24, 2016, Alaska traffic fatalities up sharply so far in 2016. <coughs> Alaska roads are on track for one of the deadliest years in the last decade according to state officials who say the number of fatal crashes has sharply increased from last year. The state had seen 75 traffic fatalities this year resulting from 69 fatal collisions as of Monday, the Alaska Department of Transportation and Public Facilities said in a statement. That's a jump of nearly 34% from the same date last in 2015. The increase comes amid a more modest nationwide increase in traffic deaths, up 10% for the first six months compared to the same period based on the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Although no definitive cause for the national uptick has been determined, state officials suggested that a rise in Americans' driving mileage linked to falling fuel prices and the proliferation of drivers using smartphones and other technology while driving may be factors. Driving behavior was a factor in about 75% of fatalities in recent years, DOT officials wrote. Alaska motorists drove just over 5 billion miles in 2015, according to state statistics. Totals for 2016 aren't yet available, but DOT spokeswoman Meadow Bailey said the department is expecting an increase of nearly 5%, or more than 100 million additional miles. Alaska State Trooper spokeswoman Megan Peters said the troopers had responded to about 47 traffic fatalities so far this year, based on informal data. That's way more than this time last year, Peters said. This time last year, they were about 32. Crashes that kill more than one person may be contributing to the spike, she said. 2014, troopers responded to three crashes with three deaths each, plus a single double fatality crash, but only two double fatality crashes in 2015. There have already been five multiple fatality crashes this year, she said, including an active van crash in June that killed three, and a van crash in Petersburg the following month that killed two. All right. Um, 
Anchorage Police Department spokeswoman Anita Shell said Wednesday that Anchorage's tra- 20 traffic fatalities through November 22nd represent a slight decrease from the 23 in both 14 and 15, although that marked a sharp rise from 15 deaths the two years before. According to APD's traffic unit, officers have issued more traffic citations this year and responded to fewer collisions overall. We're down slightly from the years past in Anchorage area, Shell said. Impairment, speed, and seatbelt use are the top three contributing factors to, say, to fatal crashes. Bailey said the DOT had lost 22% of its budget, or $60 million, to budget cuts since 2015. Those cuts have meant reductions in manpower for state road crews and some state roads being prioritized for snow removal over others. Just had a young woman last uh, couple weeks ago in Fairbanks. Um, New Year's Eve, that morning of New Year's Eve, died hit by a vehicle. Um, she wasn't walking on the sidewalk. The sidewalk was covered in snow. Mm. DOT, is that because they're losing money, not prioritizing that road? Statewide, since 2015, we've reduced 55 equipment operator positions. Although the department tries to maintain regular staffing, Bailey said the budget cuts have affected its ability to conduct extra work beyond standard hours. We still maintain roads to the same standards that we did before, Bailey said. We work shorter hours. We're not able to respond through the night. We don't have as much overtime ability. No specific factors have been blamed for the steeper rise in Alaska traffic deaths, but Bailey said the DOT has also seen an increase in crashes involving drivers not using seatbelts, driving while distracted or impaired, and speeding. Speeding actually is a huge one here, Bailey said. It's probably more challenging in Alaska because you've got such varied conditions from week to week. But the posted speed limits are for perfect conditions, so we try to remind people to drive for the current conditions instead of the posted speed. Warm Alaska winters have changed road maintenance procedures statewide, particularly in the interior, where Bailey said conditions are currently so slippery you can't drive the speed limit. One change crew, one change road crews, have made and sometimes using salt brine rather than salt or a mix of salt and sand on more crash-prone areas such as curves, bridges, and intersections. Salt as a brine is actually less expensive. It's diluted as a solution, so it goes further, Bailey said. Sand lasts for about eight vehicles. After that, it gets kicked off to the side of the road. In Anchorage, DOT spokeswoman Shannon McCarthy said road crews weren't seeing much snow, but have still been dealing with frost on area roads during morning hours. When the road surface is super cold, under 32 degrees, and then you have a nice warm day where there's sunshine overnight, you'll have condensation like a glass of water. You have slick spots on a perfectly clear morning, even when there's no precipitation. So make sure there's plenty of space between you and the driver in front of you. She also advised pedestrians to wear reflective vests or other materials and urged drivers to keep a close lookout for people walking along area roads. This is a time period when we have the most vehicle pedestrian crashes. It starts in August and November as one of the highest months. It's very hard to see pedestrians. There's a lot of snow to provide contrast. And there's not a lot of light. In the long run, DOT hopes to reduce traffic deaths by looking at what Bailey called the three E's. Education of the driving public, enforcement of traffic laws, particularly in Alaska highway safety corridors, and engineering for new highway projects. Is this a trend we're seeing or this anomaly? Time will tell, but in the meantime, we're trying to be proactive. The DOT is urging Alaskans to help reduce traffic deaths by using seatbelts and headlights, driving for conditions, and not driving while impaired. In addition, drivers should leave plenty of room between themselves and road maintenance or snow removal vehicles. Information about road conditions statewide is available from 511.alaska.gov.
or by calling 511. All right. Good. Good from ADN. Good, insightful. One of the things coming that we, that I wanted to look at quickly is looking at these um, car accidents in Fairbanks. Went back and looked at citydata.com and one of the, they've got information from 1994 to 2014, so over a 20-year period. And one of the things, the most accidents, fatal car accidents in Fairbanks happen in August, May, and July. Interesting to me. The, the least amount of accidents were in April. Okay. Um, the most was like 22 in August. December's 10. November 10. January 8. Okay. Another thing to think about when you're out there driving. The worst day, the most traffic fatalities in Fairbanks happened on Sunday. That is evening and morning. I wouldn't have thought that either. Saturday's a little bit, but it's not even the next highest. It's like Monday and Thursday. It's crazy. Most of the deaths happen in the evening. Okay. Um, a lot of deaths on Monday and Sunday morning. One of the things in looking at data from this city-data.com, it, it just shows trends. And one of the things that concerns me about seeing a trend, I, I'm looking at this data and we've got 94 and there's this upswing of fatal traffic accidents to 1999 over a five-year period. And then it goes down. And then in 2002, um, there were none. There were no traffic fatalities in Fairbanks. It's awesome. Um, it starts rising after that, though, of course. Huge spike in 2007. Close to 40, maybe 38 traffic fatalities in 2007. Drops off big. Kind of... Um, Flat lines a little bit. Eight, ten a year. 2013 was good. Good. How can any death be good, right? 2014, a rough year. We're looking at 18. Okay. Um, and this is per 100,000 population, so it's a little skewed in numbers. We've got thing again that worries me. We've been in an upswing. And to go back to what we said, legalization of cannabis, we've got a recreation, recreational market that was legalized. We do not have a population that is used to medical cannabis buying in a store. We have a lot of young people. We're going to have a lot of tourists. The biggest time, with all the tourists coming in the summer, the biggest traffic fatality times, August, July, June, May. Well... Let's keep those roads safe, right? Keep people, keep distance between cars, drive for the conditions, do not drive impaired. Get a designated driver, stay home, stay home. I guess, you, you know, it is good to party. Get a cab, take a bus, designated driver, designated driver.
I'm gonna go back out on Cookie's Kush. Whew. Cookie's Kush. Thanks, Dank. And soon coming from Good Sense. Thank you for joining us on Far North Toko. You can find more episodes on SoundCloud, Search Mid Toko, and FarNorthToko.com. See ya!